This podcast has a PowerPoint presentation that goes along with the show. So if you would like to see the PowerPoint presentation, then head over to our YouTube channel at American Civil War and UK History. Although American Civil War and UK history is a hobby, there are small costs associated with running a podcast. So if you enjoy our content, please support the show. You can do this by pressing the support the show button or pressing on the link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you for your continued support. Daz, American Civil War and UK history. Cheers. Hello. Everyone, I'm Daz and welcome to American Civil War and UK History Podcast. This presentation is available as a video on our YouTube channel and as a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. Today, I'm joined by historian, park service volunteer at Fort Henry and Forts Donaldson and past president of the Clarksville Civil War Roundtable. It's Greg Biggs. Welcome, Greg. Hi, nice to see you. Thanks for thanks for uh, one to be a part of this. It still amazes me that uh, people, you know, a couple thousand miles away from me, care about our civil war. But then Britain was heavily involved. With a lot of people uh, uh, dig a little bit deeper with you know th- building things like the CSS Alabama and trade with both sides and um, everything else. So it's always yeah. nice to uh, speak to my cousins across the pond. Thank you. Yes, that is very true. Yeah. And uh, today we're going to be discussing the battles of Fort Henry and Fort Donison, which took place during the early part of 1862. Um, so in January 1862, a relatively unknown brigadier general by the name of Ulysses S. Grant and uh, a flag officer, Andrew Foote, pitched an idea of invading Tennessee to the commander of the Department of Missouri, Major General Henry Hallett. So, Greg, could you tell us a little bit about this meeting with these guys and how the plan was going to be implemented? Well, this is interesting because you, you, um, the, I do Army staff rides at Fort Donaldson, and one of the things that the U.S. Army has is what's called the nine principles of war that they fight under. I'm, I'm assuming the British Army has something similar to that. Um, one of those is unity of command, which means that the top all the way down to the bottom, when they get on the page, they're on the page and they do whatever the mission is that, that they're assigned to do. Grant has a problem in that Henry Halleck, his boss, doesn't like him. And he wants instead Charles Ferguson Smith to be uh, part uh, or to command the expedition because Smith was about as regular old line U.S. Army as you could possibly get, whereas Grant had the reputation from the early war or not the early war his pre-war years as hitting the alcohol a little too hard, um, justifiable in a couple cases back in those days, and and uh, he just didn't want him, and he basically tries very hard the entire campaign to stab him in the back. To the point that Grant actually has pretty good intel about what the Confederates had at Fort Henry. And he sets a meeting with Halleck and goes up to St. Louis with his maps and charts and everything else and meets Halleck and starts to lay out his proposal for the invasion. And after 15, 20 minutes, Halleck gets up and just walks out of the room. But when you have Flag Officer Foote and Charles Ferguson Smith, who had also done reconnaissance on the Tennessee River, at Fort Henry, sending in their reports. Oh, it's from Flag Officer Foote and Charles Ferguson Smith, so these must be correct reports, even though Grant was telling him the correct information as well. Um, Keep in mind, as I said, they had very good intelligence about what Fort Henry was about, including its gunpower, 
They had zero intelligence on Fort Donelson because the Confederates a couple miles downstream had erected a boom across the the uh, Cumberland River and the gunboats couldn't get over that boom until the rain started hitting and the, ro- the rivers would rise so they could just sail right over the boom. So when they go in against the gun battery at Fort Donelson on St. Valentine's Day, they had no idea what the gun power was, but they knew what the gun power was at Fort Henry. So that gives Halleck the information he needs as a department commander to let Grant finally go. But what he's worried about is if you look on your map, uh, you have a large Confederate force at Bowling Green, Kentucky, and another one at at uh, Columbus, Kentucky, which is southwest of Paducah. And what he's worried about is if Grant goes up the Tennessee River to Fort Henry, and he's only going to have two divisions of infantry, less than about 10,000 men, and Confederate reinforcements from Bowling Green, Fort Donelson, and Columbus, Kentucky jump on his rear, and he gets chopped to pieces. Well, not only does Grant's career end, but possibly Halleck's career as well. And Halleck is very cognizant of wanting to have the eyes and ears of President Lincoln. Uh, These generals in the American Civil War, Halleck was a professional. He was called Old Brains from his West Point days, president of the Napoleon Club when he was there. These guys knew what they were doing. His counterpart in Louisville at the Department of Ohio was Don Carlos Buell, also West Point trained. But these guys understood politics, and they understood the newspapers, and they understood at this stage of the American Civil War, if you catch the eyes and ears of President Lincoln, you might go places. But in order for that to happen, you've got to do something that draws his attention to what you're trying to do. So Halleck is worried about Grant getting chopped up at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, for that matter. Um, And he finally has the gut check and lets him go on February 2nd of 1862, basing out of Paducah. And just to the right of Paducah there at the headwaters of the Tennessee and Ohio is the town of Smithland, Kentucky. So uh, that's where Grant's going to pull troops from his district of Cairo. Uh, He's grabbed Paducah uh, right after uh, the Confederates had moved up to take Columbus, Kentucky in September of 1861. He sends a couple of regiments to grab Paducah. Uh, on his own volition and sending a note up to Halleck. Oh, by the way, I hope you don't mind. I've sent two regiments to take Paducah because the Confederates have taken Columbus, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And why do you think uh, Halleck actually changes his mind in the end and lets Grant go on this? Because he, he didn't, really, like you said, he didn't want to, did he? I, I think it's because he realizes that if he wins, and in fact, let's jump ahead to the end of the campaign where he does send a note to the War Department and 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 to the President, he says, for Fort Henry and Donaldson, I asked for command of the Western Theater. That's what he's angling for. He doesn't want to just be a district guy or departmental guy. He wants the whole kit and caboodle in, in the West. So he wants to be over his department in Missouri and over Don Carlos Buell's Department of the Ohio. That is his ultimate objective. And, and if Grant pulls this off and wins, that's the big feather in his cap. So he understands that at some point in, 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 in war, you have to take a calculated risk. And this is a calculated risk. But I think if you look at Grant's plan, um, it's a very solid plan. And he's got the backing of four ironclad uh, gunboats under Flag Officer Foote and some of the timberclad gunboats. And it, it's a, a plan that he finally says, OK, let's see what happens. And he hopes for the best. And then what he is going to do as this campaign starts up is he's going to realize he does not have enough troops to do what he wants to do. Uh, Don Carlos Buell has over 65,000 men at Bowling Green, whereas Grant's only got 
about uh, uh, 15, 20,000 men at Cairo. And then Halleck has also got to worry about what's going on in the rest of Missouri. So he's he's got a twofold split focus. So he's got to look directly west of St. Louis, and he's got to look directly to the southeast from uh, Cairo to the two rivers. So he's got to keep a garrison of men in St. Louis to prosecute the war in Missouri as well. Uh-huh. So uh, so he that's something a lot of people don't realize is he's not just focused on the two rivers like like uh, Buell is going to be focused on Bowling Green and then Nashville. He's got to look in two directions. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so you've mentioned Andrew Foote there, but um, what I want uh, you to do is explain the Western Flotilla because it's so important to the Western theatre, isn't it? So give us a, a, a flavour of the, the, the history of the Western Flotilla and how important they're going to be in this operation. Well, that, that's great. You can't under, uh, underestimate a uh, nice picture of Island Number 10 there. Uh, by the way, if you look at the pilot houses on the ironclads, they're square vertical boxes. That's how they were in the Fort Henry Donaldson campaign. They were not the sloped casemate like you see on the USS Cairo. That comes after the Battle of Memphis when these ships will get retrofitted with some more armor on the front, the railroad iron that they put on the front, and, and then they change those vertical pilot houses, which got penetrated pretty badly at Fort Donaldson. Uh, in fact, foot gets wounded. Um, so they, they put the slope pillbox armored uh, type pilot house to, to replace them. But it, it's an interesting thing because when, when the um, Anaconda plan gets modified by Lincoln to not only choke the Confederate coastline and cutting off imports from Britain and France and whoever else they're going to buy from, um, it's the rivers. And President Lincoln had been on the Mississippi River as a young man on a flatboat. If you look at the 1860 census of the United States, it's it's not just counting how many people lived here. It was an agricultural census, how much crops were grown, who grew them, where they were grown, uh, and also the industrial capacity of the United States at the time, and how much trade was done on the inland rivers. According to the 1860 census, the Mississippi River Valley, which includes by extension the Ohio River, Tennessee, Cumberland, Missouri River, Illinois River, Red River, et cetera, 1,000 steamboats, which is enormous amount of trade on the river. Now and then, you cannot ship anything as cheaply as you can by water. That's why you have these massive container ships today sailing all around the world because it's just so cheap. Um, And the rivers were the same thing. So when they realized that, okay, we're going to run this war in the West, and oh, by the way, the two biggest rivers of the United States are there, the Missouri and the Mississippi in, in that order, and then number three is the Ohio in terms of importance of trade. Um, I, I do tours up at Cairo every now and then. And when you put one foot in the Mississippi River and one foot in the Ohio River, and then you tell people that 50% of the water that flows in the United States flows by that point, that's a staggering statistic. And, yeah. and people that don't live on the rivers like I do in Clarksville don't realize how much today the barge traffic is on these massive rivers. Uh, thousands of barges going up and down the rivers from you know Minneapolis to St. Louis to New Orleans and then to the ocean going uh, ports on bigger ships from there and vice versa. So um, when they realize that, okay, if we're going to do campaigns on the rivers, we need a fleet. So they go to the United States Navy and they say, okay, we want to build this thing called the Brownwater Navy. And the U.S. Navy goes, uh, I'm sorry, that's not in our job description. We don't do that. We, we have... Uh, ships of the line and frigates and sloops of war 
and we sailed the oceans and we interdict the slave trade as Britain was doing and the French were doing. And if we have to fight the French or the British again, then we're, that's what our job is. We don't do rivers. But they were smart enough to send a captain named John Rogers to St. Louis, or excuse me, to Cincinnati. And he will buy three steamboats there and convert them to the timberclads, Lexington, Tyler, and Conestoga. Now, these timberclads cannot go up against a fixed fortification because they're not armored, but they can project power on the rivers with their big guns. So that's the start of, of what's going to be um, the gunboat flotilla, the ironclads. Then they decide, okay, we're going to need these ironclads. So they approach a guy named James Eves in St. Louis who owns a shipyard there in the, in the suburb of Carondelet. And he's been building boats uh, for a while, and he tenders a contract to the federal government for these ironclads designed by a gentleman named Samuel Pook. Pook's son will also design warships for the United States Navy for the Spanish-American War era. So it, it's going to run in the family. And he basically comes up with a very simplistic design. They're called the Pook's Turtles. Now look at the picture you have up and think of the hard shell of a turtle. So you've got an ironclad casemate, at least where the guns are amidships and on the bow. The rest is not armored, at least until later. And then you have a shallow draft gunboat because the rivers will ebb and flow depending on how much rain there is, not because we have the Tennessee Valley Authority with massive locks and dams that we have today. So if you have in the summertime where there's not a lot of rain and the Cumberland River is only drawing three or four feet, a gunboat like this or a large steamboat with a six-foot draft isn't going anywhere. So you have to wait till the rain shows up. So these will draw six feet of water, and they're flat bottom because all the riverboats uh, uh, were flat bottom, commercial and otherwise. And they're designed to, with this armor, they'll have eight-inch guns initially in the bow where the armor is, and they're going to come bow on, uh, showing the armor and their biggest guns. They'll have on the waist guns, sometimes 32 to 42-pounders. And then these ships will be re-equipped with more powerful weapons as the war goes along and as their value as a weapon system uh, is proven. Now, my analogy that I use for these is the gunboats of 19, not 19, excuse me, 1864 are like the Sherman tank of 1942. Now, the British Eighth Army got Shermans for the Battle of El Alamein, and they're the helped uh, defeat Rommel there. But the Sherman tank of 1944 is a different tank. It's up-armored. In some cases, it's been up-gunned. The British stick the 17-pounder on it and call it the Firefly. Uh, so it's a great weapon system, and you find out where's the weaknesses, and you fix them. These gunboats are no different. It's a great weapon system, and as the war goes on, they get tweaked. They'll add the, the railroad armor between the guns on the waist towards the bow, and they'll change the pilot house. will be the main thing that, that, uh, that they do, and then change the cannons. So this becomes known as as the um, the flotilla, and then it'll be changed its name to the Mississippi River Squadron. So if you want to project power on the Tennessee Cumberland uh, and protect the Ohio, and then project power up the or down the Mississippi, you need these ironclad ships. Now, because you've got the seven city class boats, which are the poop turtles, then they convert a snag boat into the USS Benton, which is the most powerful of the ironclads. It looks like a poop turtle, but it's bigger and has more guns. And then they convert a ferry boat into the USS Essex. Um, and that's going to be another ironclad that doesn't do quite so well in the Battle of Fort Henry uh, because the boilers are on the gun deck and not below the gun deck like on the poop turtles. And then they will capture uh, the ironclad. And we'll talk about Phillips River Raid, I'm sure, after Fort Henry, um, the CSS Eastport and convert it to the USS Eastport. 
So th that's what the power projection is going to be. So John Rogers does not have the rank to command this flotilla, so they will bring in Captain Andrew Holfoot and tell him you're going to have to coordinate with Brigadier General U.S. Grant. And Foote says, that's fine, but I want one star on my shoulder as well so that we're treated as co-equals. He doesn't tell me what to do. I don't tell him what to do. We're going to be equal. So he gets promoted to flag officer, which is now basically rear admiral in the United States Navy with one star. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship like between the Navy and the Army? Is it a good relationship or is, it, is there that rivalry there? There, there's a little bit of the rivalry, but but Grant and Halleck work together amazing. And and if you study, excuse me, let, let's go back to the fall of '61 along the coast of North Carolina. The Outer Banks uh, get captured by the Union Navy and the Union Army. That's incredible cooperation. And 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 as I tell people on these tours, if you start with the North Carolina campaign. Um, in 1861, and then jump ahead to Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, February 62, and then you've got some, um, the, the Battle of Memphis is not, is an entirely naval thing, but here you got Island Number 10, where the Union Army is heavily involved, and then, of course, Vicksburg, and Army-Navy works along, you know, side each other, incredible, no matter who takes over after foot, Charles Davis, um, David Porter, uh, they understand that we have an objective to conquer uh, and they haven't invented college football yet. We have that rivalry between Army and Navy once a year, yeah. um, which which really is a big-time rivalry, and it still is. I mean, Army and Navy, like, you know, talk to each other still and make fun of each other. But, I mean, there's a little bit of jiving going on. And and some of the, you know, foot has a, a crew problem initially because a lot of the, the big deep-water Navy ships, like, we don't want to detach our guys from our big ships to these things. So some Army guys will actually transfer over, civilians will transfer over, and the guys that pilot these ships are all civilian steamboat captains because they know where the shoals are. They know where the low water areas are. They know the bends in the rivers. The Navy doesn't know that because they've never been up and down these rivers. So these civilian pilots, I think, are kind of the unsung uh, heroes, if you were, because they're the ones driving these warships, and they're the ones getting killed and wounded, actually, as well. And yeah. that gets left out. But but Foot, I'm glad you bring that because Foot and Grant get along amazingly. And as I tell people on the on the tours, that the only time Army and Navy doesn't win a campaign, a joint campaign, is the Red River campaign of May of '64. Mm -hmm. That's the only time, and I think that rests more on Nathaniel Banks than it does on on the Navy. Yeah, and again, like you're saying, these so these rivers are like the super highway of the time. The roads are well. You can't really use the roads back then, can you? So this is really going to help. So how early on do uh, the federal government realize that these rivers are absolute pivotal to, you know, getting a foothold in the south? Right from the fall of 61, the contracts to, to uh, Eads are uh, let in October of 61. That's when these, his seven city class gunboats get uh, start getting built. Uh, those of you that are uh, Virginia and Monitor fans and they like to tout that this is the first ironclads, nope. These boats beat them by about a month. Uh, they're in the water by about a, a month, and they're also in combat about a month before the Virginia and the Monitor square off over there in Hampton Roads, Virginia. So the first ironclads of the war are these. So once the federal government and the Department of the Navy signs off on this and Lincoln's pushing it uh, because of his knowledge of the Mississippi River, it's it's full speed ahead, and and 
they, they start building them right off. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be dozens upon dozens of other ironclads, including turreted ironclads. Uh, Cairo and Mound City up on the Ohio River will be probably the largest naval base of the entire war, close to 100 warships and about 200 hospital and supply ships. We'll call those places home. Uh-huh. Just And I'm to this day kind of mad at the United States Navy because when you go to Mound City, there's not a giant memorial to the United States Navy on, on the Western Rivers. There's a small plaque on the flood wall at Cairo, and that's it. Yeah, that's not, that's not, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, can no, I just it, and it really is. It really is, because yeah. this is U.S. Navy history. I mean, it's you, huge, you guys yeah, keep... It's a huge part of the Western Theater, isn't it? You know, yeah, It is the key part. It's, it's yeah. what will help win the war, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, can I just ask about the Confederates? Did they have a naval presence? Uh, they had uh, a handful of wooden gunboats down in New Orleans, and they will send eight of them up uh, to just below... Um, Cairo, the junction, the confluence of the two rivers, there'll be a naval fight at Plum Run Bend, uh, just right around the area of Fort Pillow. Uh, and, and the U.S. side gets a little bit the worse of that one. Um, the East Port is an ironclad being built close to where Shiloh is, not completed. And we'll talk more about that in the aftermath of Fort Henry. And then a couple of wooden gunboats are being built at Nashville, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, their whole defense of the Western Theater River structure is going to be fixed fortifications, um, yeah. which are fine as long as you don't allow yourself to get bottled up, uh, bottled up inside. Um, you know where you lose maneuver, which is exactly what's going to happen mm-hmm. at Fort Donelson, Vicksburg, Island Number Ten. You know yeah. other, other <laughs> places, and, yeah, and I- unless you unless you've got a fleet to back up these these. Uh, these fixed fortifications, you're not going to probably pull them off. No. And we'll, we'll get into the orders yeah. for what was supposed to happen at Fort Donaldson when we get to that part. Okay. So let's talk about Fort Henry then. Um, so firstly, its location, how it right. was built, and its design. Well, uh, the the summer of 1861, Governor Isham Harris, who was the pro-secession governor of the state, if you live here in Tennessee and you study Civil War history long enough, you uh, learn that Isham Harris seceded and took Tennessee with him. Uh, Tennessee tries to secede in February of 1861. The legislature passes the Ordinance of Secession. It goes to the public for ratification, and it's overwhelmingly voted down. And then in the aftermath of Fort Sumter in April, uh, in May, the Tennessee legislature passes another Ordinance of Secession, goes to the public again for a vote, on June 8th is when the plebiscite is, and overwhelmingly, the public says, yes, we're leaving, as will North Carolina, Arkansas, and Virginia. So you now have 11 states in the Confederacy, and when the Confederates have, have uh, will move up to Columbus, Kentucky in September of 1861, you've now nicely corked up the Mississippi River almost all the way to the Ohio. And imagine the Illinois and Iowa and Wisconsin and Minnesota farmers that get their crops to market by water and they can't get their crops to market anymore. And that's, by the way, crops to market going all the way down to New Orleans to go onto sailing ships. And a lot of people in your country might not know this, but a lot of that food is going to the United Kingdom. Uh Uh, From 1860 on, Great Britain becomes a net food importer and the population is now too big to be sustained by what can be grown locally. 
Um, so now they're buying from the United States. And as Frank Owsley, who wrote a great book called King Cotton Diplomacy, he stated in there, King Corn beats King Cotton. In other words, you got to eat you, yeah. before you do anything else. You got to eat. So that's the importance of, of corking up the river. So the Confederates realize that and will start to build these chains of fortifications. On the Mississippi side, from Memphis up, you have Fort Pickering, and then you have Fort Randolph, Fort Pillow, up to New Madrid, Missouri, uh, Island Number 10, uh, Tiptonville, Tennessee, and then all the way up to Columbus, Kentucky. Uh, and then you see here Fort Henry. Now, ten, ten, Kentucky in May of 61 declares itself neutral, pro-Southern governor, pro-Northern legislature. Um, long story behind that. Uh but they declare themselves neutral, and Aisha Maris is like, hey, that's fantastic because that puts this big shield across our northern border. But then by about May of, and June of 61, he's starting to look at the map, and he goes, well, what happens if the Union decides to violate it or Kentucky decides to jump on one side of the, the fence or the other? I've got these rivers that are bisecting this departmental defense line that runs from Cumberland Gap in the east to Columbus, Kentucky in the west. So he will get a railroad engineer named Adna Anderson, and he will ride over with some guys, and they'll look for forts on the Tennessee River and the Cumberland River. They will first go to Dover, and he has a couple things he has to adhere to. One, he has to be south of the Kentucky state line. That's a key thing. Even though the terrain about uh, seven, eight miles to the north of these forts is going to be better, and then the isthmus between the rivers is going to be a lot closer he can't go over to a town called Lineport, which doesn't exist anymore, and, and do it there. So he's got to be below the Kentucky state line. The second thing he has to do is be north of the Memphis, Clarksville, and Louisville Railroad, which cuts south of both of Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. In fact, the closest it gets to Dover is a town called Cumberland City, which is about 15, 16 miles to the, away. And the railroad turns away from Cumberland City and heads to the Tennessee River at Danville and crosses there. So that's his parameter. So that's his really narrow little area that he can look for fortifications. So he arrives at Dover, rides a little bit north of Dover, about a mile or so, and on high ground about 60, 70 feet above the Cumberland River is a fantastic piece of land. And his other criteria is about a two-mile straight line stretch of river to zero in his guns. And that is met here at the Cumberland River. So he sketches some things out, takes some notes, and then rides 12 miles west, but slightly to the southwest to a place called Standing Rock Creek. Standing Rock Creek is uh, roughly about where that other creek is below uh, Fort Henry. And it, he finds a nice hunk of high ground there uh, where plunging fire, he's every bit of probably 80, 90 feet above the Tennessee River. And the problem was, as you can see, there's an S-curve there. So you don't get your two miles of straight gunfire that they want. But he does some sketches there and says, this is, I think, a good place to build a fort. So then he rides back to Nashville, turns them over to Governor Harris and his military engineer named Daniel Donaldson. So Donaldson is a professional soldier, will, will ride out to look these places over. He loves the Dover location signs off on that, and then he gets to Standing Rock Creek, and he says, well, the problem is you can't get too many shots out of your guns before the Union Navy can turn your position, so let's see if we can find something better. So they, on the east bank of the Tennessee River, 
We're right about eight miles north to a place called Kirkman's Old Landing. It's a steamboat landing. It's one of the things that these pilots on the gunboats are going to know where they are because they're on the maps. And it's a place where local farmers know steamboats show up. And if you've got a crop of tobacco you want to get to market or some wheat, which is a big wheat area too, uh, or whatever else you're going, you wait there until the next steamboat shows up. You then load your product on the steamboat, you get paid, and then off you go. It's basically a place that's a flat bottom thing where the steamboat drives up, beaches itself, the ramp comes down, they tie a rope to a tree, props, passengers, whatever, get on and off. This is also the largest concentration of iron furnaces in the entire Confederacy, about 40 of them, uh, including a number of them in this direct area. So you've got things for that getting uh, on and off these boats, passengers getting on and off these boats. So Kirkman's Old Landing, the only problem with these is they're on a floodplain. And the Tennessee River now, because of the lock and dam system, is significantly wider than it's three times wider than what you see there, um, at least three times wider. And so when they start uh, um, build, going ahead and building the fort there, um, this local or, or this Tennessee artilleryman named uh, Joseph, um, oh, I'm brain cramping. Uh, Joseph, is it Smith? Uh, hang on, give me some, uh, one second. Uh, where's Smith killed? Um, Joseph Dixon, sorry, Captain Joseph Dixon. He's an artillery, but, but he's got engineering experience, so he's going to be put in charge of Fort Henry. And while they're building it, a local guy shows up and says, you must not be from around here because this place floods like the Dickens in the wintertime. Tennessee gets a lot of rain from November into March. Uh, we've been getting a ton of rain the last two weeks alone, and and uh, that's when the rainy season is. And he points out to Captain Dixon up the side of a tree trunk, he goes, here's the floodwater marks, and if you build this fort, it's going to be underwater. Sure. So, But by the time the Confederates start making this investment of money, manpower, tools, everything else, it's too late to, uh -huh. to move. And, and they start advocating, well, maybe, and now by this time, the Kentucky neutrality issue will crumble in September um, when the Union moves into to Camp Dick Robinson, followed by the Confederates moving to, to Columbus um, within a couple of days of each other. It just collapses like the house of cards that it is. But by September, it's way too late to go, okay, stop work on Henry and Donaldson. Let's go up to Lineport and redo it. There's not enough manpower, everything else. So they're, they're like, okay, we've been dealt the hand of cards. We're going to have to play this hand. Mm -hmm. So straight away, they're against it. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the Battle of Fort Henry. Um, the action takes place on February 6, 1862. So how does that unfold, Greg? Please explain to us. All right, February 2nd. Sorry. Can you go back to the map real, can you go back to that map real quick? I'll yeah. use that map real quick. Thank you. Just for a bit, and then we'll jump ahead. Yeah. Cool. So February 2nd, Grant lets, um, uh, or uh, uh, Halleck lets Grant go. So he loads up steamboats with John McClernand's division, and he will sail up the Tennessee River. The Tennessee flows south to north. So when you're heading south on the Tennessee River, that's upstream. When you're heading south on the Cumberland River, that's upstream. When you're heading south on the Mississippi River, that's downstream. So he gets to a place about uh, six miles uh, uh, above Fort Henry at Itra's Landing, and he sends some guys ashore. Is this a good place to, to uh, get off? Nope, a little too far away. Gets back on the steamboats, goes up another couple of miles, and then lands his troops there and builds an earthen fortification, which, by the way, is still out there in the woods. 
and he calls it Camp Halleck because he's he's a political general and he's sucking up to the big boss. Um, and then the steamboats go back and they pick up Charles Ferguson Smith's division. So you see McClernand on the right side. Smith's division will get dropped a, a couple miles above Fort Hyman across the river, which doesn't get started uh, being built, by the way, until uh, December of 1861. And its job is not to hold big guns. Its job is to hold field pieces and to protect the high ground on the opposite bank of Fort Henry. If you go there and you stand in Fort Hyman and you put a battery of six-pounders in there, Fort Henry is completely untenable because you can shell it from the high ground. And Fort Henry does have a handful of field pieces that can respond, but you can just sit there, pick your target, and pound them into planks pretty much. Uh, my allegory when I do uh, staff rights for the military there, as I say, think the French at Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam in 1954. They never believe the Viet Minh will get artillery on the hills above them to shell their fort that's down in the valley, and darned if the Viet Minh didn't get artillery on the hills. So your lesson here is never underestimate what your enemy can do to you. So the plan that Grant comes up with is very Clausewitzian, even though nobody hardly in the United States Army has read Clausewitz because you had to speak old German or French. Joseph Johnston has uh, and advocates to Congress, let's drop the Jominian textbook and let's go to Clausewitz at West Point. Uh, too late, war's already starting. So Smith is on the left bank, oh, uh, McClernand's on the right. His plan is to march Smith uh, down to Fort Hyman, capture it, put artillery in there, and then pound Fort Henry into submission while McClernand moves around and cuts off any escape from Fort Henry because Grant doesn't want to just take Fort Henry. He wants to capture the 2,300-man garrison. Uh -huh. That's very Clausewitzian. That's take these guys off the chessboard and deal with them later. I don't want to have to fight these guys later on. So that's what happens. And and McClernand starts his advance towards uh, Fort Henry. Confederate cavalry scouts see it. Confederate cavalry scouts on the other side see uh, what Smith's doing. There's a rocket battery there. They send a couple rockets up in the air. The commander of the Fort Henry garrison is a Kentuckian named Lloyd Tillman. He's got a couple regiments down at Paris Landing, which is across from where the Standing Rock Creek is. A couple steamboats go pick them up, bring them up to Fort Henry, pulls the garrison across from Fort, Hen uh, Fort Hyman to Fort Henry, and he says, I'm going to stay here with about 125 guys and man the guns, and you, under um, the Colonel of the 10th Tennessee, who's a good Prussian officer, a Colonel Adolphus Hyman, um, who's interesting because he's a Prussian immigrant, noted architect, and he's commanding the, one of the two Irish regiments raised in Tennessee, the, the 10th. So they will march across on... Uh, actually, it's not. Uh, that's where Grant comes over on the Ridge Road. He will head south towards Standing Rock Creek, cross Standing Rock Creek no less than five times, and then turn to the northeast to get to uh, Fort Donaldson. The reason why he has to do that is because McClernand and his cavalry are too close, and he will actually fight a skirmish on that retreat uh, with some Union cavalry guys. He'll lose a battery of field pieces there, as his own rear guard, the 9th Tennessee Cavalry Battalion, does a horrible job, and they scamper through the lines and basically leave Hyman's rear unprotected. So off they go, and they will get there sometime later that night, about 2,300 men. Meanwhile, uh, the gunboats will close in, and they will literally close in, and, and they will start uh, with your four ironclads uh, in the front, um, the uh, first position being the, uh, the Cincinnati, Carondelet, St. Louis, 
and the Essex. And they're basically coming line abreast because their power is going to be in the bow guns where the armor is. And they're it's like and they're going and they're going against the current, by the way. And as it is raining a lot during this campaign, the current is swifter and the water is rising. These gunboats max out at seven knots. So if you've got a two or three knot current, they're going at four to five knots, which is basically, you know, a brisk walk. So that plays into the the uh, gunpower of the Confederate garrison. Now, the Confederates have done something with their two miles of straight straight line there. There's Panther Island on the western side of the Tennessee River. They put torpedoes in there, and they zero their guns in on the right eastern side of Panther Island. Now, the, the Federals knew about this in one of the gunboat reconnaissance. They saw these torpedoes floating. They pulled a couple of them up. There's a great story when Grant and Put are on one of the boats, and they pull one of these up, and one, it starts to hiss, and and Grant and Halleck start running for a ladder to get up on top of the casemate in case it 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 uh, blows up, and and uh, Grant supposedly wins the race, and Halleck says that's the last time uh, Army is going to defeat Navy in this campaign, uh-huh. and 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 yeah, so it, it kind of sets the tone for a little jiving back and forth. So the gunboats come on, and they only have X amount of long-range artillery rounds. These 8-inch guns will max out about 3,500 uh, 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 feet, or excuse me, 3,500 yards, whereas the Confederates have a couple nice heavy guns. There's 17 guns in Fort Henry, and most of them are on the river. Now, you got a lot of 32-pounders that go out to about 1,200 yards. 24-pounder uh, rifle gun goes out quite quite a nice distance. A couple thousand, uh, a couple thousand yards there. Uh, you got a forty-two pound gun, which has got a pretty good radius, and and you've got a rifled uh, Columbiad in there, and that's got a nice radius of about five thousand plus yards. So you you you've got some pretty good gunpowder that actually outranged these eight-inch guns on the ironclads, and then the timberclads are behind them, shooting over their tops because they don't have armor to stand up to this fixed fortification. So as the the battle breaks out, the flooding continues, and the floodwaters enter Fort Henry proper. And some of the garrison has to stop and pull their powder away from the guns and move it up to higher ground, which places them farther away from the guns themselves. And that means it takes longer to do your reloads. Now, the garrison there is actually doing a pretty good job. The Essex gets uh, pummeled. Her casemate gets penetrated. And uh, it's it's not a good thing because the shot hits the boiler, explodes the boiler, and her skipper and a number of the crewmen get killed or badly burned from scalding. So she pulls, cuts her power, and you don't turn around. You just cut your power and use the rudders and let the current take you out of harm's way. The other gunboats are getting hit pretty, uh, pretty hard as well. These guys take a, a a really, really good pounding. They're not invulnerable, and and but that's the word that's going to come to the Confederate garrison at Fort Donaldson that we can't stop the ironclads. They're in, they're indefeatable or undefeatable. We we can't keep these guys. But what happens is the 24-pound gun blows up uh, and, and, and is dismounted. The 42-pound gun uh, uh, has a, a premature firing and, and uh, uh, also gets damaged. And then one by one, as, as the ironclads get, get closer, 
they start zeroing in on the gun ports and they just start knocking the 32s and 42 pound guns and the 10 inch Columbiad uh, out of action. Um, the 10 inch Columbiad goes out because you have to, if you know anything about firing an artillery piece at the back is the vent. And when you put your powder bag in there, you then have to stick a metal prick in there to punch a hole in the powder bag before you put your fuse in. Well, when you, when you bend and break off your prick, you've now just spiked your own gun. Mm -hmm. And and that happens with this 10 inch. It'll happen over Fort Donaldson as well. So by, by the time of the fall of Fort Henry, Foot's gunboats are literally four to 500 yards away, which is point blank for an eight inch uh, naval gun in the bow. And even though the walls are every bit of 20 feet thick, these these big balls of the kinetic energy are just pounding right through these walls. Tillman has looks at what he's done. He's figured, okay, I've bought an hour and 45 minutes, two hours worth of time for the garrison to get away. That's my mission. He strikes his colors. Now, Halleck uh, sees the option to, to grab Fort Henry and glory for the Navy, McClernand can't get there because of the ravines on his side and on the other side are both flooding and backfilling with water. He makes it about to the Fort Henry Road, uh, but he doesn't get below that point. And so Halleck puts a, a little rowboat in the water with a naval officer, and he ride, he rows his boat to the sally port. And instead of you know getting out and walking into the sally port, he rows the boat into the sally port. Does that tell you that the fort has a flooding issue? You're not supposed to row boats into sally ports. So he will take he will take Tillman's uh, surrender. So Tillman will surrender. A handful of guys of Tillman's crew get uh, uh, killed and wounded, uh, but not many, uh, less than 10 overall, I believe it is. And, and, and uh, he's done his job. He's bought time. He's done an honorable thing. And the amazing thing about Lloyd Tillman is he stayed behind to do this. He didn't delegate that to another officer. That's okay. leading by example. Yeah. So so good on and Tillman's a Paducah native, so he's almost fighting for his backyard, if you will. So Fort Henry Falls. And yep. on February sixth, the telegram gets to Halleck. Telegram from Halleck gets to Lincoln, gets the US newspapers and the Southern newspapers. And even though there had been a victory at Mill Springs uh, a couple weeks earlier in West Central Kentucky, uh the, the Federals couldn't prosecute it because you're in the foothills of the Appalachians and the road networks got awful. Mm-hmm. Fort Henry, as you said earlier, is basically on a super highway. And yep. they publish maps in these newspapers. And if there's anything people could do back then, they might not be able to read, but they could figure out what a map is. And guys could say, here's the Tennessee River, here's Fort Henry. We've just blown through here. And now that means we can send gunboats into the deep south. Yep. And that leads, in my opinion, to the greatest what if of the Western theater uh, of the entire Civil War, and that'll be what happens after the fall of Fort Henry. Now, before we get to that, if that's a question you wish to ask, I'm hoping it is, yeah. um, what Halleck, being the Jominian set-piece guy, wants to do is he looks at Fort Henry as a place to build a supply base, pile on supplies, pile on reinforcements, and then where am I going from here? Do I go south? Do I head over to, to Clarksville? In which case, I've got to get past Fort Donaldson to get to Clarksville. By the way, he tells Grant to do that a couple of times. And Grant should have said, you know, General Halleck, if you pull out your map, you'll see Fort Donaldson is between me and Clarksville. So I can't get to Clarksville to take out the railroad bridge until we deal with Fort Donaldson. Uh, or does he load up everybody and sail down the Tennessee or up the Tennessee River, excuse me, all the way to Florence, Alabama? 
So he has some options, and Buell is the same way coming down the railroad towards Bowling Green. He's focused on Nashville, capture Bowling Green and Nashville, pile on a ton of supplies, and then what do we do? Grant is captured on not only taking a place, but grabbing the garrison. Let's get the army off the chessboard. So what happens after the fall of Fort Henry, and the great news uh, uh, hits out, and if you read Tim Smith's recent book on uh, Grant Invades Tennessee, which is a fabulous book, Tim sent it to me to read as a manuscript, and Kendall Gott, uh, who uh, wrote a great book on on uh, Fort Donaldson, arguing that this is where the South loses the Civil War, um, an argument that can be made, by the way. They both think, and I do as well, that is what happens right after the fall of Fort Henry on the Tennessee River with Seth Ledyard Phelps and his three timber-clad gunboats going up the Tennessee River to do two things. One, capturing the CSS Eastport, which they knew was there being built, and two, going all the way to Florence, Alabama to project Union power and also to report back to Grant and Foote what is there of Confederate defenses between Fort Henry and Florence, Alabama, which is probably 200 river miles. It's not a straight line because, you know, the river does this. Mm-hmm. So it's about 200-plus river miles to where Florence, Alabama is, and you can't go any further because of the Muscle Shoals. So that's what the mission of Phelps is going to do. And later that afternoon, off go the three timberclads. They first go to the Memphis, Charleston, and Louisville Railroad Bridge. So what Phelps does is is they damage the railroad bridge because they don't want Confederate reinforcements coming from Memphis. Uh, Then they go on down to Cerro Gordo, which is just um, upstream from upstream from Savannah, Tennessee, close to the Shiloh Battlefield. That's where the Eastport's being built. So there she is sitting in the water. The hull's done. The casemate's done. The engines are still on shore. The iron is still on the shore and, and some of the other things that are going on the warship. So he will leave one of the gunboats there, uh, and they will um, it'll be the Tyler that does that. And, and the crew, and he say, okay, you secure this, and all of the material on the shore, engines, iron, wood, everything. Bring it on board the Eastport because we're going to tow it back. Then the Conestoga and the Lexington will sail all the way down to Florence, Alabama. And they will capture a couple Confederate supply ships there, have a little bit of a a skirmish with with one of them trying to escape. Uh, Much to the chagrin of the townsfolk, Florence is on the north side of the Tennessee, Tuscumbia is on the south side, and basically scare the the, uh, bejesus out of the locals, like, holy cow, uh, we're way down here, and here's two Union gunboats with hostile intent. So they basically capture some other things for the East Port there and put it on those two boats. And then, uh, and, and as the two supply boats that I, that I talk about. And on the um, 8th of, of February, uh, late in that afternoon, they'll start to set sail back up towards uh, Cerro Gordo to pick up the Tyler and the East Port and then head on back to Smithland, Paducah, and eventually Cairo. And the, the East Port will be completed. Uh, as a Union Navy ironclad, it will be actually more powerful than the Benton and will serve the U.S. Navy on the Western Rivers into the Red River campaign where she will be lost uh, in that debacle there. Um, so you get, and the other thing that they see coming back is the campsite 
of Cruz Tennessee Battalion. They land some guys there with some weapons. Nobody's home. Uh, they capture some supplies and accoutrements and come back and report to Grant and Halleck and Foote. Well, we've had a nice excursion down to Florence, Alabama, and we didn't see a single Confederate soldier the entire way. So that means the Confederate defenses of Department Number 2 from Columbus on the west to Bowling Green in the center to uh, Cumberland Gap on the east side is a crust defense with no reserves whatsoever. That takes in, by the way, Clarksville, um, Bowling Green, uh, Hopkinsville, north of Clarksville, Fort Henry and Donaldson. That's a crust defense. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the map where Eastport uh, at Florence, Alabama, as Eastport was a major river town, um, just about eight miles away from Iuka, Mississippi, on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which is the most important railroad of the Confederacy. It is the only true east-west railroad connecting Memphis to Chattanooga and then from there to the Atlantic uh, coast and the Gulf Coast, by the way. So troops, supplies, war material, food, ammunition, everything uses this rail network. If Grant gets his way, and I've not seen that he ever proposed this, Halleck's not thinking of this, being Jominian, but the what-if of this fall of Fort Henry is Grant gets 40 or 50 steamers loaded with troops. That's about 25 to 30,000 men, which is what he's going to end up getting. You've got a fleet of ironclads, a couple beaten up at Fort Henry, can be replaced by a couple that will show up at Fort, uh, Fort Donaldson. And then you've got a couple follow-on gunboats coming, including the Benton, the Cairo, and the mortar boats, which will not show up in time. Um, and then... You've got the Lexington, the Tata, and the Conestoga, and then you sail that force all the way to Florence, Alabama, You and you drop a garrison at Eastport, and then you go and you cut the Memphis, Clarksville, Louisville Railroad. It would take the Confederates every bit of probably two weeks to a month to amass enough power at either Corinth or Chattanooga or Decatur, Alabama, and then start a campaign to drive Grant out. And then, of course, is Grant going to just allow himself to be pushed out? No, because Halleck's got to send him everybody wearing a blue suit, as he will do during the Fort Henry Donaldson campaign, because, again, he doesn't want Grant to get clobbered down here. So he's grabbing guys in St. Louis and sending them on steamboats all the way to Henry and Donaldson. Um, That's where Lou Wallace's division comes from. That's where uh, Buell's uh, reinforcing brigade uh, uh, will come from uh, under uh, uh, the colonel of, of the first Nebraska. Uh, that's where, you know, uh, another six, 7,000 men show up uh, on the night of the Confederate surrender. So Halleck is doing a good job shoving guys down. So Grant could have easily been reinforced and had a totally secure line of supply on the Tennessee River on steamboats that could carry hundreds of, of tons of supplies and manpower all the way down here to Eastport and Florence. And in my opinion, Tim Smith's opinion and Kendall Gott's opinion, you advance the war in the West a minimum of six months. That was part one of the battles of Forts Henry and Donaldson with Greg Biggs. I hope you enjoyed. See you all again soon. Cheers.